Grassroots, True Grit. This is Shenango Voice. Visit our website at shenangovoice.com, and if you enjoy our programming, share a link to our podcast with your friends. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant, offering their weekly Doshirak subscription meal program, featuring freshly prepared meals for pickup or delivery on Thursdays. Bohemian Moon is also available to cater private gatherings, on-site business meetings, and off-site group orders, tailored to each occasion for convenience, privacy, and a great culinary experience. Dine-in service is available Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Visit the website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 607-334-9480 for updated information on all Bohemian Moon has to offer. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shenango Voice, a local public service podcast. Our mission is to inform, connect, and inspire Shenango County, New York with information and stories that bring out the best in our community. In this episode, our guest Ed Erickson discusses the myth of the Confederate lost cause and why some of this country's oldest wounds have never healed. This interview was recorded by Diane Gallo on December 6, 2021, and developed by Shenango Voice producers Betty By the Way, Diane Gallo, and Mibby Kim. Hi, this is Diane Gallo with Shenango Voice, and we're here today with Dr. Edward J. Erickson, a retired professor of military history from the Department of War Studies at the Marine Corps University. Ed retired from the United States Army as a lieutenant colonel with multiple combat tours in the field artillery and additional experiences as a foreign area officer specializing in the Middle East. He earned a PhD in history from the University of Leeds in England, and he is the author of 17 books and dozens of articles and chapters. Ed is a graduate of Norwich High School, a local boy, and he and his wife, Jennifer Collins, live in Norwich. Welcome, Ed. It's very nice to have you here with us today. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure. Originally, in thinking about this episode, it was my curiosity about the massive flags that were flying, Confederate flags that were flying from, oh, the backyards and houses and also from the backs of pickup trucks. And it became such a curiosity. We began moving to saying, well, what does the Confederate flag mean? What does flying it now mean? Why are we flying it here? It, it led to a whole variety of questions, which led to a book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, which then led to many other things, which then led to Ed Erickson. So in order to help frame a huge subject, I'm going to start with just a very basic question about Ty Sejuli's book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. This is a multi-parted question. So I guess I would go first for the myth of the lost cause. The phrase itself gives me two problems. One is, what is the lost cause? And the idea of the myth being almost confusing as a word. 
like, what exactly are we meaning here? So this is my preface as to how we got here. So have you read the book? I assume you must have. I have read the book. I bought it immediately when it came out. Tyson Dooley is, is a retired Army Brigadier General who was the head of the history department at West Point. Uh, he retired, and now he's the Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College in nearby Clinton, New York. It's an autobiography. It's not history, but it is a classic epiphany story. It is the story of a boy who grew up in the segregated South going to what he called seg academies or whites-only school. And the book is a chronological story of his life, starting from, from living in the South in segregated societies, then going to Washington and Lee University in the Shenandoah Valley, and then coming into the United States Army as a young army officer uh, in army bases named after Confederate generals like Fort Lee and Fort Bragg and Fort Benning and Fort Hood and so on. And, and then ultimately coming to West Point where Lee is the subject of adoration and veneration in the literal sense. And his struggle as he matures uh, coming into his 50s and early 60s with redefining his view of Robert E. Lee. And he has an epiphany. And the punchline is he spent his whole life in basically societies that venerated Robert E. Lee. But at the end of his professional life, he reverses his whole thinking about the man and regards him in the worst possible light. And, and I, I love the book. If you haven't read it, uh, I, I hope you will. I actually have. And I also listened to a speech that he gave from the Washington and Lee Chapel, which had, I believe, Robert E. Lee reclining in white marble with no religious iconography at all, just Robert E. Lee. So yes. even though it's called the chapel, there's nothing to indicate that the saint or the god is anything other than Robert E. Lee. In the background, I think he did a masterful job just for giving his story in the mm -hmm. most straightforward, clear way and not getting till 50 or 60 years in that slap your forehead moment. So to, wait a minute, wait a minute. What on earth is going on here? So in a way, it was that story that totally, I'm going to use the word legitimized. It totally made valid all the points that he poured forth from that building story he told of his own history mm -hmm. and his blindness within his very, I'll say, privileged he was privileged to have an education, to have a parent, to have a choice. What I appreciated so much was he said what he wanted to be, above all things, was a Southern gentleman. Who could fight with that? Everybody's right. mommy would want their son to be a Southern gentleman. So in this book, he gets to the point where his hero, his saint, everything that he honors, he said at one point that, well, as he grew up, Jesus Christ was a five, but Robert E. Lee was about an 11 or a 12. And, you know, I said, okay, that kind of frames the conversation here. And then you get to the point where now Robert E. Lee is not God, but possibly a traitor. That's where I really would appreciate your insight and your background about this myth 
a, a lost cause, a traitor? Mm-hmm. What's happening here? I'm lost. Yeah. Sidul's his his chapter seven is titled "My Verdict." Robert E. Lee committed treason to preserve slavery. Uh, that's his punchline. That's his thesis. The ending ending the book. Um, it, it was a national bestseller. It resonates with contemporary America today because we are right in the middle of of extended national discourse about Confederate monuments, about the Confederate flag, about states, mottos, and flags. And his timing, just out of pure coincidence, has has been marvelous. He was, in our popular conventional imagination, the received wisdom of America. He was an honorable, heroic figure who put the, the needs of his soldiers, the needs of his state, the beliefs of, of his class of people ahead of his own interests. He re-examines this by, by going carefully through the record. And, and what he has determined is that, that Lee was financially invested in the slave system. He owned a plantation. Now it's Arlington National Cemetery. But Lee had a personal financial stake in slavery. Our view of Lee is that that he was a man of honor, that that he resigned from the U.S. Army uh, because he he deeply felt loyalty to his home state of Virginia. So Robert E. Lee and me points out interesting facts. I'm a military historian. I never knew some of this stuff. There were eight West Point educated colonels in the United States Army in 1861 who were born in Virginia. And of those eight colonels, Only Lee resigned his commission and took up arms against the United States. So the book highlights this, that that our our popular received wisdom on the subject is, well, all the Southern officers uh, marched off the field uh, and and went south because of state loyalty. And and this was not true. So the book carefully examines a a number of things like this, uh, what we call our received wisdom. And it comes to the punchline that Lee was invested in the Southern system, that there were other factors beyond state's loyalty that influenced his decision uh, to commit treason. Uh, let, let me just go on with, with, with what exactly is treason, because that's, that's the verdict of the book. Treason is explicitly outlined in the United States Constitution in Article 3, Section 3. Uh, of of the Constitution. Article 3 deals with the executive branch. Treason shall consist only in levying war against the United States or to adhere to the causes giving aid or comfort uh, to the enemy here or elsewhere. It's very specific. When you hear Donald Trump say, for example, when, when somebody criticizes Trump, he says it's treason. No, it's not. Criticism is not treason. The idea that Biden has committed treason by enacting a social legislative bill, that's not treason either. Treason explicitly deals with the idea of picking up arms by force of arms opposing the United States. And that's what Lee did. So clearly, clearly, even if you don't embrace or accept Saidul's idea that Lee was less an honorable man, uh, the, the, the facts, the, the sheer facts that he led the Army of Northern Virginia, 
against the United States uh, for a period of four years uh, clearly makes Lee a traitor. So how can you come out of that mess as a glorious hero? Is that the myth? Does that enter the world of the myth, the received wisdom? As I remember somebody saying, oh, it wasn't slavery the Civil War was about. It was about states' rights. So you hear that confusion. I always thought it was slavery. That was what I was taught in school, that the war happened because of slavery. Then later versions that I heard from other people were that it was because of states' rights and independence. What we're talking about is what we have come to call the lost cause mythology. And how did this come about? If you are a person of my age uh, and you arrived in America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, and you lived in New York State or the North, you would clearly say the Civil War, the root cause was slavery. If you went to the Southern states, in those years, 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, 90s even, you would hear that the Civil War was fought over states' rights, that the Civil War was fought over the right to decide your own destiny and your own economic future, that the Civil War uh, was a response to a federal invasion. Those are all part of the lost cause mythology. The war ended in April 1865. The war ended with the South totally defeated and occupied by the Union Army. About 10 years after that, so coming into the 1870s, a number of ex-Confederate generals, notably Jubal Early, and ex-Confederate politicians, notably Vice President Alexander Stevens, started to write articles and make speeches and create the idea that the war had not necessarily been about slavery. It was over honor and states' rights and a response to invasion. So the Civil War was responsive to Northern aggression rather than proactive for the Southerners to retain a system of enslavement of people. Well, as we come into the latter part of the 19th century, reconciliation between the North and the South becomes a crucial part of the American political process. The South Africans have gone through a period of reconciliation of whites and blacks. Other countries, uh, the, the Bosniaks and Serbs in the Balkans are going through a period of reconciliation. The Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. So reconciliation is part of a post-war process that most Americans are generally unaware of. It was successful. The North regained the lost states. The lost states regained their right. They, they regained their seats in Congress. They, they, they essentially, through a system called Jim Crow and a series of laws, almost reinstated slavery. The Black people of the South were not slaves. They were returned to a condition of, of servitude as small farmers and, and such. Uh, I'd like to pause here just for a minute mm -hmm. because I had been doing some background reading about how when the Confederates were going to European countries to get support during the Civil War, they had to find some way to put a spin on slavery. So they downplayed or eliminated slavery as the conversation and went to states' rights and independence as mm -hmm. being what they wanted support for. And early on in one of the Southern newspapers, it said very clearly, 
So this is a Southern newspaper. Let me not mislead anyone here or in Yankee land. And our doctrine is that we are fighting for independence, that our great and necessary domestic institution of slavery shall be preserved. So there it conflates the preservation of and the preservation of other institutions of which slavery is the groundwork. Inflation, it leaves slavery behind and brings independence to the front. Yes. Long story short, the South made a terrible strategic mistake in believing that, that the Europeans were desperate for their cotton products to run the looms and mills in, in England and France. So to persuade those countries, which had already passed anti-slavery legislation 50, 60 years before the American Civil War, they kind of a bait and switch situation where they presented themselves as, as something other than, than they, they also presented the, the, the human condition of slaves as, as better than it was, that slaves were fairly happy, that they were well cared for, that, that even though they worked hard and toiled, they, they, they had adequate food and, and their brothers in Africa were dying of, of diseases and starvation. So, so there, were, there was a concerted effort to camouflage or, or to cloak slavery. And that cloaking was really interesting in that Tysa Julie cut right to the heart in his book when he said, let's stop talking about these as plantations and start speaking of them as what they were, forced slave labor camps. That immediately pivots us from Scarlett O'Hara racing in her bell-bottom dress and the noble Ashley looking afar and into the distance and sort of puts these two stories together in shocking contrast. You have to have a blind eye for one story. And that's the story that gets made by Hollywood is usually the one that gets perpetuated. I just really thought that that line in his book was a, a heart stopper. Yeah, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, uh, one of the most famous American movies from the 20th century. Uh, the first line of that book, it was a land of cotton fields and cavaliers. And the romantic idea that this was a noble society that prospered in spite of the slaves. And, and those kind of movies, Gone with the Wind, uh, Song of the South, the, the Disney movie on Uncle Remus that, that present slaves as, as happy and, and contented. Uh, nothing could have been far, maybe one or two out of a million, I don't know, but this was enforced labor and families were broken apart, children were sold, uh, people were abused, uh, sexual abuse was rampant. It's, it's a horrible, a horrible system. So back to the lost cause mythology. As we come into the 20th century, this constructed view of American history becomes widely accepted by the American public, and particularly in the South, in school curriculums. And as we come into the 1960s, 1970s, because of the massive interest in, in desegregation in those years, and Black advocates like Martin Luther King, for example, the American public start, starts to re-examine the truth of the lost cause mythology. And in our time, it's fading and it's badly dented. It still exists to some extent, but among professional historians, uh, among uh, school officials in the North and even in the South, uh, it's been discredited. School curriculums are being revised even in places like Virginia and Georgia to 
put slavery back on the table as a causal agent of the war. I want to put a bookmark in that Virginia piece because I really had the sense that from the different places that I was reading that Southerners in general considered themselves superior to Northerners because they had, I don't know, a superior right or privilege or education or breeding. And that in particular, Virginians were superior altogether. I think the plantation economy, the idea of a landed gentry in the American South gives that kind of attitude traction. And, and credibility, and the, the idea of a Southern gentleman, and in terms of, of the old English landed gentry, the nobility that existed on estates and manors in England. Uh, and, and, and those Englishmen weren't content to stay there. They, they, they basically colonized Scotland and colonized Ireland and established the same sort of, of fiefdoms uh, over oppressed Scots and Irish people. And that mentality transferred itself in, into the Southern psyche. I want to throw something in here, which may be just a little bit sidecar to this. In 1858, Mississippi Senator Albert Gallatin Brown said, in terms of expanding empire for slavery, this was this not very many in terms of numbers of population who owned 20 or more slaves, but like 750,000, I'm going to ballpark the figure. He said, well, there was this idea, we were going to expand empire into Mexico, a few states in Mexico, down into South America, Central America, certainly. And Mississippi Senator uh, Brown said, oh, I want Cuba. And I know that sooner or later, we must have it. And if that worm-eaten throne of Spain is willing to give it for a fair equivalent, well and good. If not, we must take it. He also wanted one or two other Mexican states for the planting and spreading of slavery. He said he had a splendid vision of empire founded on military ideas, representing the noble peculiarities of Southern civilization, having control of the two dominant staples of the world's commerce, cotton and sugar, and possessing the highways of the world's commerce, the oceans, surpassing all the empires. He must have been very tired at the end of that sentence. And by now, the Confederate flag is a symbol of dreamy wealth, education, and superior breeding of the elite Southern gentleman, the closest thing to royalty and God's chosen that the South could invent. You know, you just got to love them. Yeah. <laughs> Slavery is the root cause of the Civil War. The proximate cause why did it start when it did? In 1860, there was the realization that the expansion of slavery into the American West, the territory acquired by the Mexican War, the Louisiana Purchase, had been truncated by the Missouri Compromise of 1820. So what happens in 1860, there's pretty much a balance in Congress among, in representation, slave states versus free states. And it's very apparent to the educated elite, people like Gallatin in the South, that over the next 50 years, as America goes toward the new 20th century, that the relative power in Congress, the slave states will soon be outvoted. And as the country adds more states, 
they were going to be free states, California and Oregon. That line that was drawn across the states uh, would guarantee that the southern states would eventually lose what political leverage they had in power. That then generates two things. One, it generates the idea that maybe we ought to become independent uh, and, and be done with it. And then the other secondary thing is, well, there are other places to look for land besides the American West, those places being the Caribbean, which were heavily dominated by slave economies to begin with, and Mexico. So those are the, really, the why in 1860? You know, Lincoln never has a majority. Lincoln's elected on, on 40% of the vote. So most Americans in, in 1860 were not sympathetic to abolitionism. Given that, why did South Carolina quickly followed by Mississippi and Georgia and all the others, the 13, the 11 Confederate states, why did they choose that moment? And there was a, a realization in the Southern collective consciousness that politically, if not now, certainly within 50 years, that the dominant political force in the Congress would be composed of free states. And that ultimately they were going to lose the slave economy based on that realization. When I read these things, you know, there comes these moments of almost breathlessness at the chutzpah. Like, wait a minute, who gave you, like, who are you to do this? Who are you to say, oh, that's the map, I'm going to take that? It's imported from Europe. They see the structures and they want to duplicate them, which I guess that's what we do. We see a structure we like. Oh, yeah, I want to be king. I'll go over here. I'll steal some land. I'll steal some people and I'll be king. Great idea. There's a phrase in our history called manifest destiny. Uh, is that, that a fancy way of saying it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. God, God intends for America. It is God's will. A white Christian God's will, not a feminine God, but a masculine white Christian God endows America and blesses America as a, as a special people. And they have a, a manifest destiny to expand from the Atlantic seaboard all the way to the Pacific. And we kind of forgotten it now, but also north into Canada and south into Mexico, that North America would be the United States. It's not governmental policy. It's the thinking and the will of most of the white men in America who vote. And this is a popular vision. We should never forget that America is created necessarily by taking other people's land, whether it's the land of the Native Americans, whether it's the land inhabited by Mexicans, uh, California, for example, who took it from the Indians themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is the way of the world. Uh, and, and one has only to look to places today like the Crimea or the Ukraine or the West Bank or Kashmir or parts of Africa to understand that, that this, this part of the human condition has not gone gently into this good night. I have a friend who her father was in the military when she was a child and he bought her a globe of the world and they would put pins in places so that they would know where people they knew were. And she said she still has that globe, but there are whole areas that no longer exist as nations. I guess the geography hasn't changed, just the names of the geography has changed. The nations have gone by the by. Americans 
and, and this kind of goes back to the manifest destiny that, that, that our country is never going to change, that the boundaries we have with, with our neighbors won't change, that there will be 50 states in our union. Um, that there's a theory in international relations that, that balkanization may happen to the United States. There, there may be chunks of our country that split off and become independent. The, the Civil War was not the final arbiter of the American destiny. Very few countries have survived more than four or 500 years without adjustments, bigger, smaller, to their geographic boundaries. It's very possible, uh, frankly, in the next 10 years that Scotland will become independent. Right. That Northern Ireland will, will secede from Britain and, and join the South. It's very, very possible that, that Spain uh, will fragment. We used to have a country called Czechoslovakia. We used to have a country called Yugoslavia. We had a country called the Soviet Union. They're all gone. And, and they've been replaced by, it's a process called micronationalism. Uh, the Bosniaks want their own country. The Serbs want their own country. The Croats, the Slovenes all want their own country. It would be historically unrealistic to think that America in the next thousand years would continue in, in its current form. That's a pessimistic view, I know. Well, it's a longer view than we're accustomed to thinking, you know, like yesterday, today, tomorrow. This long view is like, makes sense. You would change. Something would happen. And it takes time for the mind to wrap around that much space and time and history and changes, little changes mm -hmm. and big changes, which is perhaps a nice segue into what about these Confederate flags that we see in Shenango County? We see them now more than ever. You would occasionally at the Shenango County Fair see a booth selling flags, you know, all kinds of, of things. And, and so for a week or two, you'd see maybe a small Confederate flag in a, in a window somewhere. But, but, but now you see big Confederate flags uh, purposely displayed on houses and you see them on the backs of pickup trucks. And it's becoming um, common, maybe not common yet, but, but certainly not surprising. And it's a sign of the times we live in. It's, uh, the display of the Confederate flag has taken on uh, a political meaning in our society that ranges from I'm a rebel, I'm an outlaw, I'm a free spirit to something like I'm anti-government and independent and going down the hatred taxonomy. Uh, I'm proud of my Southern heritage and, and maybe even at the bottom of this hatred taxonomy, if you will, the idea of white Christian nationalism and white supremacy. But it is increasingly uh, troubling to see this here in our county and in, in northern parts of the country. So when I see a Confederate flag flying, I'm reading it as a racist statement. I'm reading it as a I'm better than statement. I also experience it as a, a transgression and in my face statement. I don't want somebody sticking their flag in my face and waving it. So like if I have to back off 20 feet because you got a big flag sticking out, it seems to me there's a there's aggression in it. One of the symptoms, in my view, of American society in the 21st century is we have become increasingly adversarial, increasingly confrontational, increasingly ready to confront our fellow citizens. I think probably at some level, 
the Confederate flag, there is a, if not an overt or an explicit racism, certainly a implicit bigotry. My system is better than yours. My view of America's past, present, and future is accurate and yours is not. I wouldn't go so far as to say that that is demonstrably proof positive of racism, proof positive of, of bigotry, but I think it does speak to a, a more narrow mindset. When I am in a calmer moment in contemplating this, I feel that these are threatened people. Their step back is to inflate themselves. I'm better than or bigger than. I'm scarier than. Don't tread on me. Don't fool with me. You don't want to do this. And I, I think, well, no, I don't. Really? And then it just seems a little sad because there's such anger there. There's such pent-up rage. And I think we had touched on this at one point about this kind of general anger that might be in the world. And I would put myself on the line here and call it male and call it younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as, as men mature, they get, they master themselves. But before they know what's happening inside themselves emotionally, you know, you touch anything that's angry and it will focus or shape itself around the convenient object or the convenient symbol. Mm -hmm. That's my 25 cents there. There was a wonderful op-ed in the New York Times four or five days ago uh, by Lisa Featherstone, a journalist at the the New York Times. And and the title of the op-ed was Josh Hawley and the Republican Obsession with Manliness. And it was a very similar thinking to what you just expressed, that younger, poorer Republican men are expressing a masculine persona based on, if not violence, uh, confrontation. And her point was, this is a symptom. This is a result of, of anxiety about your own identity. This is a result of fear of um, loss of status, that an increasing number of Republican politicians, Josh Hawley uh, named in the article, Ted Cruz, Matt Gates, uh, and even some women, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. This Rambo-esque masculine <laughs> culture, uh, that when you take it apart, when, when, you, when you unwrap it, what you have at its core is fear and anxiety, uh, loss of status, the idea that who I am doesn't matter, that my views aren't taken into account in the national political discourse. And I think there's a lot to that. I think there's an awful lot to that. The problem with that, the whole mystique, is that it is conflated to mean to to all Republicans. I mean, certainly that's not Mitt Romney. Certainly that's not Lisa Murkowski. Certainly that's not uh, Asa Hutchinson. But it's a real problem for the Republican Party these days, I think. Backing into this, you get one up on this this idea of upness and also this idea of anger and bullying. To me, like this is the bully place. This is the place where the girls back off. This is the place where the guys who don't want to fight are going to just kind of move out of the way. And that whole atmosphere or oxygen is loaded with it. It's oppressive. It's perplexing. It's just perplexing. I think, well, you're not from the South. 
you're not a Confederate. It's 160 years later. I guess that there will always be fractured groups that don't feel like they belong anywhere. And maybe mm -hmm. it's a way to belong. And maybe it's a way to be mad. And maybe if your flag is flying, you're not blowing off your gun. We don't know. Yeah. Although to me, I think maybe it might incite you to blow off your gun, but we don't know. Yeah. So yeah. going for a, Kind of a wrapping up this Confederate flag flying, we come to a variety of possible threads that hopefully we will all outgrow without getting shot or shooting each other and we'll move to another era. But certainly it can mean racism. It can mean aggression. It can mean I just don't want you to fool with me. I'm a rebel and I'll never, ever be any good. I don't think here in Shango County, the, the people who fly the flags, I think it's an act of, of individualism more than it is an act of collective uh, anger is, is, I guess, my, my bottom line. And I, I hope I'm right. I hope you're right, too. I am with you on that. We hope that it's, it's just exactly that. Ed Erickson, this has been a real rip. <laughs> my head yeah. is so happy. And so packed with, packed with fact. <laughs> this is Diane Gallo with Chenango Voice. We've been talking with Dr. Edward J. Erickson, a retired professor of military history from the Department of War Studies at the Marine Corps University. One hell of a historian, great conversation, great talk, bits of pieces from Chenango County and around the world. Thank you so much, Ed, for your expertise and your time and your, your just fun. Diane, thank you very much. It's, it's been a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Shenango Voice. We hope you enjoyed our program. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast application so that you can be notified when our next episode is published. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant, offering their weekly Doshirak subscription meal program, featuring freshly prepared meals for pickup or delivery on Thursdays. Bohemian Moon is also available to cater private gatherings, on-site business meetings, and off-site group orders, tailored to each occasion for convenience, privacy, and a great culinary experience. Dine-in service is available Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Visit the website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 607-334-9480 for updated information on all Bohemian Moon has to offer. Thank you for listening.